To obey organized government is right. To disobey is death. This is your FBI. Step into the incredible, amazing future. Welcome to Free World Theory, the podcast you're not supposed to listen to. A Chaz Holloway production. I'm Bill Hurianson. In this episode, Aldous Huxley talks about mind control. The jungles of Washington, D.C. come alive. And we'll look at the life of libertarian icon Rose Wilder Lane. But first, have you been thinking America's political system can no longer be trusted? You're not wrong. Chaz Holloway explains. Joseph Stalin once said, it doesn't matter who votes. It matters who counts the votes. He wasn't the first to say it, but Americans have just come face to face with that very reality. The recent election was a meltdown. The coolant flashed to steam, it blew the head off the reactor, the radioactive material burned into the atmosphere. The fallout goes far beyond America. It has revealed to everyone all across the world that there is no political election anywhere that can be trusted ever again. The election in America back in 2000, between Bush and Gore, revealed how many hundreds of thousands of votes are dumped in every election. The election in 2020, between Biden and Trump, revealed how many votes are manufactured out of thin air. It doesn't matter who votes, it matters who counts the votes. Political democracy no longer exists, it's dead. That's the clear message to everyone, everywhere. Voting can't be trusted. Meanwhile, newscasters pretend it's all okay as they report there is no evidence of voter fraud and anyone who claims there was is just promoting a conspiracy theory. The U.S. has truly now become like Rome. In ancient Rome, there was no single unified military. Powerful senators, called consuls, controlled their own armies. Wars were waged not by the nation, but by the senators. It's how Julius Caesar was able to take over the Republic. Today, in America, in the age of digital war, leaders control media armies. History is repeating itself. Senators, party leaders, CEOs seeking government favors, command media forces who enthusiastically fight battles for them like bar brawlers. These violent info crusaders don't fight for the nation, they fight for ideologies. And all the shadow bans, the throttling, the doxing, and the censorship on TV is not any type of real news or political commentary, but war. Digital wars disguised as news. It's now possible that media cartels, not governments, will be the ones to start a second civil war or even a World War III. This is the pilot episode of the Free World Theory podcast. In episodes to come, you'll hear how there are hard scientific laws that underlie all social systems. You'll hear what they are and how they can be used to increase individualism and freedom and to decrease centralization and tyranny. These are natural laws, not political ones. Natural laws are tested by the scientific method and they tell you how the world actually is. 
For example, in the 1600s when Isaac Newton said force equals mass times acceleration, he was describing how the world behaves everywhere, at any time, and under all circumstances. He identified the actual structure of nature. Politicians, on the other hand, do the exact opposite. They make laws up in their heads and try to impose them onto nature. They try to change nature into something they want it to be. For example, when Chairman Mao decided China needed reform, he decreed there was no such thing as personal property. He launched a no-property program he called the Great Leap Forward and enforced his law with a brutal Red Army. He tried to change human nature into what he wanted it to be. The result? 50 million dead. The socialist politicians who have now taken over the American system are trying to do the very same thing, change nature into what they want it to be. The politicians who want to engineer society simply don't understand how societies work. 400 years ago, science replaced superstition in physics. Today, technological solutions can replace political catastrophes. Free world theory is the science of doing this. In coming episodes, we'll explain how digital world thinking is replacing old industrial world thinking, how networks are replacing political hierarchies, how decentralization is replacing centralization. The old world is dying. The socialist uprising that has taken control of America is the last gasp of the old world trying to survive. But it's not the real future. Socialism is just the ultimate form of centralization. But the future, as you'll see, is decentralization. I'm Charles Holloway for Free World Theory. You're listening to the Free World Theory podcast. Vous écoutez le podcast de la théorie de la liberté universelle. Aldous Huxley was an English writer and philosopher. He authored over 50 books and was most famous for writing the dystopian novel Brave New World in 1932 and in 1955 The Doors of Perception about his pioneering work with psychedelic drugs. He was nominated for a Nobel Prize in Literature seven times. He was George Orwell's professor at Eton. He was the first in a new crop of social philosophers that would include Albert Hoffman, the inventor of LSD, and Timothy Leary. What's not widely known about Huxley is that he was also a successful Hollywood screenwriter, penning major motion pictures such as Pride and Prejudice in 1940, Madame Curie in 1943, Jane Eyre in 1944, and he wrote Alice's Adventures in Wonderland for Walt Disney. In 1962, Aldous Huxley gave a talk at Berkeley University in California called The Ultimate Revolution. He talked about how governments have always controlled people and described how, in the near future, police forces could easily be replaced with a far more efficient program of manipulating people's minds instead. Today, we are faced, I think, with the approach of what may be called the ultimate revolution, the final revolution, where a man can act directly on the mind body of his fellows that if you are going to control any population for any length of time, you must have some measure of consent. Pure terrorism can function for a fairly long time, but I think sooner or later you have to bring in an element of persuasion, an element of 
getting people to consent to what is happening to them. Well, it seems to me that the nature of the ultimate revolution with which we are now faced is precisely this, uh, that we are in process of developing techniques which uh, will enable the controlling oligarchy who get people actually to love their servitude. This is the, the ultimate in malevolent revolution, shall we say. And uh, this is a, a problem which uh, has interested me for many years and about which I wrote 30 years ago a, a fable, The Brave New World, which is uh, the account of a society making use of all the the devices at that time available, and some of the devices which uh, I imagined to be possible, uh, I mean, in order to standardize the population, to, uh, to create mass-produced models of human beings arranged in some kind of a caste system. And I have noticed, uh, with increasing dismay, that a number of the predictions which were purely fantastic when I made them 30 years ago uh, have come true or, or seem in process of coming true, that a, a number of techniques about which I talked seem to be here already. This method of control uh, by which uh, people can be made to enjoy a state of affairs which, by any decent standard, they ought not to enjoy, the enjoyment of servitude. Compare the parable of Brave New World with another parable which was put forth more recently, George Orwell's book, 1984. Orwell wrote his book between 45 and 48, at the time when the Stalinist terror regime was still in full swing, and just after the collapse of the Hitlerian terror regime. And his book, which I admire greatly, it's a book of very great talent and extraordinary ingenuity, shows, so to say, a projection into the future of the immediate past, of what for him was the immediate past, of a society where control was exercised wholly by terrorism, whereas my own uh, book, which was written in 1932, when there was only a, a mild dictatorship in the form of Mussolini in existence, I was therefore free in a way which Orwell was not free, uh, to think about these other methods of control, non-violent methods. I'm inclined to think that the dictatorships of the future, and I think there are going to be dictatorships, will be a good deal nearer to the Brave New World pattern than to the 1984 pattern. They will be a good deal nearer, not because of any humanitarian qualms in the dictators, but simply because the Brave New World pattern is probably a good deal more efficient than the other. But if you can get people to consent to the state of servitude, if you can do this, then you have a much more easily controllable society than you would if you were relying wholly on clubs and firing squads and concentration camps. But then we come to consideration of non-terroristic techniques for inducing people to love their servitude. First of all, hypnosis. We now, I think, know pretty clearly the sort of statistical structure of a population in regard to its suggestibility. It's very interesting when you look at the findings in different fields. You will find the same sorts of orders of magnitude continually cropping up. The percentage of people who can be hypnotized with the utmost facility is about 20%. 
uh, corresponding number at the other end of the scale are, are very, very difficult or almost impossible to hypnotize, and that in between there lies a, a large mass of people who can be hypnotized. Uh, the same sort of figures crop up again, for example, in relation to the administration of placebos. And similarly, with regard to what in Brave New World I call hypnopedia, which is the sleep teaching, I was talking not long ago to a man who manufactures records which people can listen to in the, during their light part of sleep. These are records for getting rich, for sexual satisfaction, for uh, confidence in salesmanship and so on. And uh, he said these records are sold on a money-back basis. And he says that there is regularly between 15 and 20% of people who write indignantly saying the records don't work at all. There, on the other hand, there is over 20% who write enthusiastically saying they're now much richer, their sexual life is much better, etc., etc. And uh, these, of course, are the dream clients, and they buy more of these records. And then in between are those who complain they're not getting much results, and they have to have letters written to them saying, well, go persist, my dear, go on, and you will get there, and they generally, <laughs> they generally do get results in the long run. Well, on the basis of this, I think we see quite clearly that the human populations can be categorized according to their suggestibility, and I suspect also that it would not be at all difficult to recognize in very early childhood who were the, those who were extremely suggestible, who were those who were extremely unsuggestible, and who were those who occupied the intermediate space. Quite clearly, if everybody were extremely unsuggestible, organized society would be quite impossible. And if everybody were extremely suggestible, dictatorship would be absolutely inevitable. I mean... Once given the fact that there are these 20% of highly suggestible people, it becomes quite clear that this is a matter of enormous political importance. Any demagogue who is able to get hold of a large number of these 20% of suggestible people and to organize them is really in a position to overthrow any government in any country. The fact remains that this susceptibility to hypnosis is something which has to be considered very carefully in relation to any democratic government. If there are 20% of the people who can really be suggested into believing almost anything, as evidently they can be, then we have to take extremely careful steps to prevent the rise of demagogues who will drive them on into extreme positions and then organize them into very, very dangerous armies, private armies, which may overthrow the government. Well, then there are, there are various other methods which one can think of, which have, thank heaven, as yet not been used, but which obviously could be used. Uh, there is, for example, the uh, pharmacological method. This was one of the things I talked about in Brave New World. I uh, invented a hypothetical drug called Soma. Um, whereas these new substances, this is really very extraordinary, the, that a number of these new mind-changing substances can produce enormous revolutions within the mental side of our being. I mean, you can have a, an enormous um, revolution, for example, with 
LSD-25 or with the newly synthesized drug uh, psilocybin, which is the active principle of the Mexican sacred mushroom, you can have this enormous mental revolution. And it is, of course, true that pharmacologists are producing a great many wonder drugs where the cure is almost worse than the disease. Every new edition of medical textbooks contains a, a longer and longer chapter on what are called iatrogenic diseases, that is to say diseases caused by doctors. Uh, and, uh, the, there is a, evidently a whole class of drugs affecting the central nervous system which can produce enormous changes in sedation, in euphoria, in energizing the whole mental process. And in this sense, this represents, it seems to me, the most extraordinary revolution that in the hands of a dictator, these substances could be used. Um, I mean, you can imagine a, a euphoric which would make people thoroughly happy even in the most abominable circumstances. I mean, the, these things are possible. I mean, this is the extraordinary thing. I mean, after all, you can certainly say that some of the psychic energizers and the new hallucinants can do incomparably more than all the theologians combined could possibly do to make the terrifying mystery of our existence seem more tolerable than it does. So that here, I think, one has an enormous area in which the ultimate revolution could function very well indeed an area in which a great deal of control could be used, not through terror, but through making life seem much more enjoyable than it normally does. Uh, enjoyable to the point where, as I've said before, uh, human beings come to love a state of things which by any reasonable and decent human standard they ought not to love. And this, I think, uh, is perfectly possible. Imagine what would happen if we woke up tomorrow and all the politicians had disappeared overnight. Would anyone go looking for them? She was one of the greatest women of her era and one of the greatest social minds in history. Her name was Rose Wilder. Born in 1886, her mother was Laura Ingalls Wilder, author of The Little House on the Prairie Books. Rose Wilder grew up poor, but as part of an American pioneer family, she knew how to be resourceful. In 1904, at 18 years old, she couldn't afford college, so she taught herself telegraphy, how to send and receive Morse code. She moved around the country on her own and worked as a telegrapher at railroad stations, Western Union offices, and hotels. In 1908, she met a charming traveling salesman and freelance writer named Gillette Lane, and Rose Wilder became Rose Wilder Lane. For eight years, the young couple traveled the country, took writing jobs, speculated on land deals, and struggled. When World War I shattered the economy, the marriage broke up. For sheer survival, Rose took a temp job at the San Francisco Bulletin, a newspaper. She had talent for it and caught the attention of the paper's head editor. He made her a staff writer and it became her big break. Before long, she was turning out daily romance fiction serials. Her compelling storylines would run for weeks at a time. She also did in-depth feature interviews with Henry Ford, Charlie Chaplin, Jack London, Herbert Hoover. By 1918, the great national magazines were eager to publish her 
the Saturday Evening Post, Good Housekeeping, The Ladies' Home Journal, dozens more. Within ten years, Rose Wilder Lane was one of the highest-paid writers in America and a respected intellectual. Greenwich Village, New York, was the center of the intellectual scene in the 1920s. Today we think of it as a 1960s-era enclave, but the scene actually started there a lot earlier. The village's bohemian reputation was already well-established by the 1910s. It was a landscape of coffee houses, odd little shops, unconventional lifestyles, small presses, art galleries, experimental theaters, and bookstores. It was a famous focal point for new movements and radical ideas. Those who frequented Greenwich Village included Robert Louis Stevenson, Walt Whitman, Mark Twain, Salvador Dali, the eccentric Professor Seagull, who claimed to be the author of the longest book in the world, over a million pages, and Rose Wilder Lane. Along with many others, she grew intrigued by a new social philosophy called communism. The Communist Party of America, founded by John Reed in 1919, operated out of Greenwich Village. And the streets buzzed with speculation about this so-called new social theory. But, unlike others, Rose Wilder Lane's work as a war correspondent took her to the Soviet Union, a supposed communist utopia. There, she observed the theory in action. She saw firsthand how hypercentralization was not about freeing people at all. It was about a few elites trying to control everything while the people starved. The Russian people were not free. They were intensely regulated like bees, she wrote, and they were as expendable as bees. The revelation inspired her to write one of the great books of the 20th century, The Discovery of Freedom. In it, she correctly identified the single force that enslaved people. It was what had always enslaved people in all civilizations since the beginning of history, dogmatic adherence to central authority. No society that turned its back on individualism, she said, could ever be free. History Remembered on Free World Theory. I'm Hayden Jones. You're listening to Free World Theory. It doesn't get any stranger than this. Oh, wait, it does get a lot stranger. You ever hear the expression, Washington is a jungle? Well, it's worse than you think. I went to the Washington Convention Center, and their large convention room had actually been transformed into a jungle. Hollywood set designers. Impressive. I walk in, running waters tumbling the rocks at my feet. It's an artificial stream. There's lavender orchids, little green ferns, the works. These wooden signs, they say, Temple of Gold and Lost Island. I take the one called Stone God Trail. So I'm walking through jungle rain, and when I get to the minor birds, I hear these tribal drums and chanting in the distance. Naturally, I follow the sound. Then I get to these flames under a black iron pot, a giant one, like cannibals use to cook lost explorers. Around it, a dozen people in business suits are chanting and dancing. 
I recognized a congressman. It's dark, but these faces come into the firelight, and I recognize another congressman, and a senator, and the secretary of state herself. She dipped in a giant spoon and tasted the cannibal's brew. Eye of newt, toe of frog, leg of jet, and hair of dog. Good, she says, but we can make it better. She passes the spoon around, and they all agree. It needs some Antifa riots, another one says, and they get a sack of it and throw it in. I know what it needs, says an FBI administrator, an investigative committee. So they find one and dump that in. Interns put more wood on the fire, and the cauldron gets hotter. Then, a congressman says, it needs more deficit spending. So in goes that. By then, the cauldron's bubbling like crazy, and they're all starting to salivate. Boy, this is going to taste great, says two of these congressmen in unison. But then, the Senate Majority Leader pushes them out of the way, takes the stirring spoon, tastes, and says, All it needs now, all it needs now is some climate change and a little more fear. They chuck some of that in, and the Speaker of the House says, no one's ever brewed up an election like this, ever. And she tastes again and says, Now for the piece de resistance. Some Dominion voting machines. Then, out of the crowd, one of them, a junior congressman from a small state, says, Wait! They all stop and look, anxious to hear what he wants to throw into the brew. But instead, he says... Hey, what if in the next election, the other side uses this stuff against us? Well, the rest are looking at each other with sideways glances. I didn't have to wonder what they were thinking for long, because they pick up that junior congressman and heave him in. The speaker dips in the spoon. It's good, she says, but we can still make it better. Free World Theory is also a book. Binge read it today. Search for The End, The Fall of the Political Class by Chas Holloway on Amazon.com. Well then, uh, very briefly, let me speak about one of the more recent developments in the sphere of neurology, the implantation of electrodes in the brain. Now, this, of course, has been done on a large scale in anybody who's watched uh, the behavior of rats with electrodes planted in different centers must uh, come away from this experience with the most extraordinary doubts about what on earth is in store for us if ever this is got hold of by a dictator. I saw not long ago some rats uh, in Magoon's laboratory at UCLA. There were two sets of them, one with electrodes planted in a pleasure center. The technique was that they had a bar which they pressed, which um, turned on a very small current and which stimulated this pleasure center, which was evidently absolutely ecstatic, because these rats were, were pressing the bar 18,000 times a day. <laughs> and, uh, apparently, if you kept them from pressing the bar for a day, they would press the bar 36,000 times on the following day and would fall till they fell down in complete exhaustion. <laughs> And they would neither eat nor be interested in the, uh, the opposite sex and would just go on pressing the uh, Then the most extraordinary uh, rats were those where the electrode was planted halfway between a pleasure and a pain center. 
and where evidently the result was a kind of mixture of the most wonderful ecstasy in being on the rack at the same time. <laughs> and you, you would see the rat sort of looking at its bar and sort of saying, to be or not to be, that is the question. <laughs> finally would approach and do it. And then would go back uh, with this awful, uh, I mean, the, if one can anthropomorphize, I mean, he was feeling something terribly mixed. And he would wait for quite a long time before pressing the bar again, but he would always press it again. I mean, so this was the, the extraordinary thing. The most recent issue of Scientific American, there's a very interesting article on electrodes in the brains of chickens. You sink into their brain a little socket with a, with a screw on it, and the electrodes then can be screwed deeper and deeper into the brain stem and you can test at any moment of what you're stimulating. And these creatures are not merely stimulated by wire. They are fitted with a miniaturized radio receiver weighing less than an ounce, which is attached to them, so that they can be communicated with at a distance. I mean, they can run about in the barnyard and you can press the button. And this particular area of the brain to which the electrode has been screwed down to will be stimulated. You will get these uh, fantastic phenomena that a sleepy chicken will suddenly get up and rush about or uh, an active chicken will suddenly sit down and go to sleep or a hen will suddenly start sitting as though it were hatching out an egg. The whole picture of the absolute control of the drives is uh, terrifying. I think it is extraordinarily important for us to realize what is happening and then to use a certain amount of imagination to extrapolate into the future the sort of things that might happen. I mean, what might happen if these fantastically powerful techniques were used by unscrupulous uh, people in authority? What on earth would happen? What sort of society would we get? We have to think about the problems which may arise in relation to these new techniques which may contribute uh, to this ultimate revolution. Our business is to be aware of what is happening, then to use our imaginations to see what might happen, how this might be abused, and then, if possible, to see that the enormous powers which we now possess, thanks to these scientific and technological advances, uh, shall be used for the benefit of human beings and not for their ultimate degradation. You've been listening to the Free World Theory Podcast, written and directed by Chas Holloway. I'm your host, Bill Hergensen. Other contributors were Hayden Jones and Kimberly Holloway. Music powered by Envato. For more information about Free World Theory, contact Chas Holloway at protonmail.com. The Free World Theory Podcast is copyright 2021 by Charles Holloway.